Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Welcome back, prom party. Hi there. That was really cheerful today. Are you feeling like you're in a good mood? I have two cups of tea in me, so I'm a little amped. Also, Splatoon 3 came out last night, so I've just been having a good time. Yeah, you've been really dedicated to Splatoon 3 the last, like, 12 hours. You say that, and it seems like I've been overplaying. I have maybe, like, three hours on the clock in that game, so let's not get carried away here. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, we are back with yet another just remarkable film this week. This one falls under, like, the BJ sweet spot of it being kind of an edgier teen film, because as we all know... I was hashtag not like most girls as a teenager. So this is a movie Mm -hmm. that I love dearly. It's also a movie a lot of you have been asking us about, especially since we did our Bring It On episode like two years ago. Uh, Friends, it's time to finally dive into Sugar and Spice. Oh, I'm so excited. But to make things even sweeter, we're not alone this week. You know her from the Dead Meat podcast. Friends, Welcome to the show, Chelsea Rebecca. Hi, Chelsea. Hello. Oh my gosh. I also was a hashtag not like other girls girl. So I'm so excited to talk about this. Oh, I'm so excited. So Chelsea, why Sugar and Spice of all the teen movies? I So I remember watching this one at sleepovers with my close girlfriends and I, I just weirdly remember the ads for this movie because they wear like those masks when they go rob the bank and those are just such a distinct visual memory that I have for some reason um I do like those costumes they've just always kind of stuck in my brain ever since this movie's come out um yeah I don't know It, it was cool to revisit this one it had been I mean since the God, mid-2000s since I'd seen this movie. And it was wild how so much of it just came flooding back (laughs) as I I watched it. It was so great. Harmony, what was your introduction to Sugar and Spice? Um, You. (laughs) I I guess more you than the podcast normally is. Um, This was one movie that you were really, really, really hyped to show me back in like, I don't know, the first six months of us dating. Where, like, you you didn't lead with, like, your favorite, favorite movies, because if I didn't like them, then, oh, the whole relationship would have gone sour. So, like, that's why I waited so long to show you Fright Night. Yeah, it's the ones, like, one step down from your absolute top tier favorites. So you were like, I got to show you Sugar and Spice. You're going to love it. And I did. But it's also been, like, I don't know, what, four years, five years? We've been together for a long time. It's been a a bit. (laughs) 
Yes, we are quite old, so I understand this. <laughs> Sugar and Spice for me was a movie that I watched um, a lot in high school. And a story that I will share with the listeners that should surprise absolutely no one because we know BJ was a bad teen. I watched this movie uh, the first time I ever robo-tripped. Um, this is amazing. Uh, this is also your reminder, friends. Don't robo-trip. It's really bad for don't you. Don't do don't robo trip. It's not. It's not good. good for you. Don't make scissor. I don't care how many rap songs make it sound cool. <laughs> it's not cool. It's a bad time. But I watched this movie the first time I robo tripped, and there's a scene in particular, and we'll obviously get like really deep into James Marsden later. But when he picks up yes. a random child in the grocery store and shakes him. Oh, my God. I rewound that part, BJ. I was laughing so hard. I must have watched that part like 17 times. I just kept rewinding it because I was so high. And it was the it was the peak of comedy for me. I could not get over it. Uh, it's still the peak of comedy, to be honest. I was dying. It's, it's so remarkable. But Sugar and Spice is one of those movies that I refer to as living in my bones in that there are parts of this movie that come out in my vernacular or in my personality that without even thinking about it. Uh, Shitfire, Kansas. Shitfire, Kansas comes out of me all the time uh, whenever I'm trying to say something <laughs> that would be like, well, darn tootin'. It'll instead be, well, shitfire, Kansas. Uh, that one comes out a lot as well as uh, <laughs> uh, Jesus Christ on a Cracker. That one also comes out a lot too. Just this movie lives with me. I can't help it. Um, so Chelsea, if you had to explain what Sugar and Spice is about to someone who's never seen it, what is the plot of this movie? Okay, so it's a, uh, it's a high school kind of dark comedy, and we have our, our main couple who are a, a cheerleader and a football player, and they get pregnant. And obviously their family's very upset. So they end up living in kind of a dumpy apartment by themselves. And uh, the cheerleader gets the idea to rob a bank with her fellow cheerleaders to help pay for the baby. Beautiful. And I'm so glad that you brought up the pregnancy because as Harmony's... I forgot all about that. <laughs> as Harmony's going to tell us... Um, the marketing campaign also forgot about the pregnancy. So, Harmony, let's paint a picture of what the hell was going on in 2001 and also what the hell were they doing trying to get people to watch this movie? Uh, okay, so in the 90s, it's really easy to figure out kind of how we marketed teen movies, specifically teen girl movies, because you could just point to a few key examples. Oh, Clueless. Let's try and capture a Clueless audience. Oh, Scream. We'll try and capture a Scream audience. Or like, shit, Titanic made a whole lot of money. Let's just try to get some of that money. And so by the time we reach the end of the decade with these very earnest teen films, um, it peters out. It gets more mean-spirited come the turn of the millennium. We start to get a, a dramatic shift in tone and the films that we're seeing. A big reason for that is that uh, Columbine takes place in 1999 and throws the teen movie sphere into complete flux because studios don't want to put out stuff in high schools. And uh, an interesting thing is that um, the trailer for this movie, which we watched this morning, uh, it, it had no problem showing guns with like these cheerleaders. But it did have problems showing that there is a teen pregnancy at the core of this movie because they don't mention it once. 
Which is such an interesting choice to me because the original title of this script was Sugar and Spice and Semi-Automatics, which is really hilarious to me. They Uh cut that aspect out post-Columbine, but the trailer, when they show like why they need money, it's the scene where James Marsden tells the parents, we're going to get married, and then it cuts to the parents' reaction of them (gasps) screaming. It completely Mm -hmm. ignores the follow-up line, which is, but not before I have our baby. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait a minute. They really... That's the whole joke. (laughs) Yeah. Uh I was like, they really marketed this about just like teens robbing a bank because they want to get married. Uh, That changes the intent a lot. And it also makes me think how many people were bamboozled by this marketing and showed up and they're like, wait a minute, this is a teen pregnancy movie. Well, like, it, even after they commit the robbery in the movie, like, there's a reporter that's like, ah, yes, five pregnant Betty dolls. And, like, they cut out the pregnant part of that line in the trailer. They are completely hiding that this is a pregnancy movie, which means that apparently in terms of marketability post-Columbine, it's okay to show them with guns, but not pregnant. That's so wild. What the hell? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I don't really understand, like, with the mindset behind it. And, like, as we got more cynical, like, we we are now in uh, sort of the sphere that would create not another teen movie and really, like, mean-spirited views of teendom. Um, This is the Mm -hmm. period of time where we start to see how much studios don't know what they're doing (laughs) as far as like marketing and releasing like these darker, edgier films. We saw it in the 90s with stuff like But I'm a Cheerleader and Jawbreaker, which wildly underperformed. 2001 kind of is like a, a peak period for like much maligned box office releases but critical darlings amongst teens like uh, Ghost World and Donnie Darko and Wet Hot American Summer and just so many of these other things that got buried under a sea of sex comedies post-American Pie. And you're absolutely right to bring up the American Pie of it all because American Pie, which we will be doing next year, I know people have been asking for that one as well, Um, but American Pie really did cause the shift because 1999, as we know, holy grail year of teen movies, that's when everything came out. We have covered more movies from 1999 than any other year on this podcast. 2001 is actually second place. Which is very interesting to me, but American Pie really changed the game because suddenly it reminded studios, oh yes, boys. And then we started prioritizing boys all over again. We had this like really sweet window in the 90s where it was all about girls and then immediately the boys came in and took it all away. Yeah, and I feel like in the late 90s, too, and leading up to the early 2000s, is comedies with girls that are a bit meaner and a bit more, I don't know, maybe giving their female audiences the credit of, I don't know, I, I guess as a as a not like other girls girl, I, I did not like rom-coms as a, mm-hmm. a teen. I didn't really watch them. Um, They just always felt too saccharine for me, and even as an adult, trying to revisit some with the mindset of like, okay, maybe I just, this was like some internalized sexism that I I couldn't let myself enjoy these. But revisiting some, I'm like, no, I just actually don't really like it. (laughs) (laughs) They're just so syrupy and I almost feel like babied by them while I'm watching them. But there's, yeah, this weird, nice era of the kind of meaner, um, I don't know, I guess bringing on's not 
the meanest, but it has an, an edge to it. Um, Drop Dead Gorgeous, mm-hmm. which same writer as this, as you told me yesterday, mm-hmm. BJ. I had no idea. Yeah, I don't know what a. And then yeah, you start getting into the kind of yeah the sex comedy. Like I don't know, the first one that comes to mind is like Euro Trip mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just there's a million bad sex comedies. Um, several of them featured Jason Biggs. Um, I I like <laughs> Saving Silverman. I'm not gonna say it's good, but uh, when we did our Bend It Like Beckham episode a few weeks ago, one thing that I pointed out that everyone messaged me to say that they loved was that. That movie came out in the weird time period between 9-11 and Mean Girls, where we didn't know what we were doing. This movie came out in Mm -hmm. the weird period between Columbine and 9-11, where we still didn't know what we were doing, (laughs) but we didn't know quite Mm -hmm. how little we knew yet. Yes. I mean, Sugar and Spice came out in January of 2001. This is one of the first movies released that year. Um, As you may or may not know, January tends to be viewed as a dumping ground month. That's not always true. There are plenty of great movies that come out in January, but a lot of studios do sort of like offset some of the stuff they have in January, which is always really disrespectful, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. Um, Oh, it's late January, too. And February is usually seen as even worse because everyone blew all their money that they got from Christmas in January. Mm -hmm. So it got buried under a bunch of other things. Like Save the Last Dance was the big teen release of the beginning of the year, and Sugar and Spice just never stood a chance. And another thing that happened um, is... Bring It On. Bring It On came out the year before. Both Bring It On and Sugar and Spice were doing all of their production around the same time. And what's really interesting is that Gabrielle Union, who, as we know, stars in Bring It On, um, she really wanted to be in Sugar and Spice, like really, really bad. And there's an interview with her that I unfortunately can't link to in the show notes because you have to use the Wayback Machine to get to it. But she (laughs) was talking about it and the kind of general consensus around all of these teen actors at the time was that Sugar and Spice was the more desirable project and Bring It On was the cheerleading movie that was the consolation prize because you didn't get the actual cheerleading movie that you wanted. Hmm. Wow. That reminds me of how in the 90s, uh, if you were an animator at Disney, Pocahontas was seen as the project that everyone wanted to work Uh on and the lion king was the movie that oh you didn't get pocahontas you're gonna go work on the the animal oh yeah Mm -hmm. pocahontas was the one that they were trying to get the academy award with oh yes and it's that is so crazy in retrospect Uh yeah and it's a good looking movie (laughs) it is it is gorgeous the music is beautiful that's its own podcast baby (laughs) (laughs) And I love that Gabrielle Union brought this whole point up because obviously in retrospect, like Bring It On is viewed as a classic. It spawned a franchise of, you know, diminishing return sequels. It's about to get a horror movie. I'm very excited to see that. Yeah. Uh, That's Yeah. Shout out to Dana Schwartz and Dr. Rebecca McKendry for writing the script on that one. Really pumped to see it. But it's just very... Weird, but we do know we've we've done a Bring It On episode in the past. If y'all haven't heard it, this is your time to go back and listen to it. But Gabrielle Union changed a lot of the script in that because originally the East Compton Clovers were kind of racial stereotypes, and she worked with the writers to be like, nah, we're fixing this, and that's why the movie is so good. So I am curious if the mm-hmm. reason Sugar and Spice was viewed as the, the better project is because, one, you get more to do because it's an edgy comedy. It's not, you know, as syrupy as you were saying, but then mm-hmm. at the same time, it 
kind of wears its problematic elements on its sleeve. It's part of the energy it's putting out, whereas the problematic elements in the first draft of Bring It On uh, were just people being straight up ignorant and not knowing how to write black people. Um, So So no wonder it was the worst script at the time. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, So before we really just get really messy and covered in glitter talking about this movie, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. Alrighty, so Sugar and Spice stars the magnificent Marley Shelton as Marley. Oh, I love Marley Shelton so much. <laughs> I oh my gosh, I adore her. And we we were lucky and got to interview her when the latest Scream came out, and she was one of my favorite people to talk to. She was like just the easiest breeziest interview, and I love her for that. She is just like when we talk about like the all American archetype, like Marley Shelton is who comes to mind, which is also why we talked about her with such high acclaim on our Patreon episode for the Sandlot. Because she is just, she's just the ultimate when you think of her and this character. Like, I can't imagine anyone else playing Diane other than Marley Shelton. So, Chelsea, how do you feel about Diane as a character? I think Diane is so much fun. She kind of reminds me of of an Elle Woods where... Mm -hmm. She, maybe in another movie, is not this character where she is, I think she seems like a good person, and that's what makes the bank robbery thing so fun, is that she, she, I think the movie is pretty kind to her. I don't think it's, it's mean at all about the fact that she's pregnant. It's like, no, damn it, she wants to provide for the baby, so she's going to do a bank robbery <laughs> in, like, the cutest way possible. And she just, she just is a character like in Elle Woods where you just want her to be your friend and you just want her to be there to hype you up when you're sad about yourself. That's the energy <laughs> I get from her. Harmony, how about you? Yes, all of that. And something that I find really fun about her character is because she is so plucky and so optimistic that when you have those like disparaging moments where they're about to be broke as a joke or when her mood swings from pregnancy kind of like rear up out of nowhere and she like explodes on people, it's like way more punchy because she's so (laughs) delightful the entire rest of the movie. Oh, yeah. I think that Diane is one of those like painfully optimistic people where you meet you meet people like this and you're like, you can't be real. Like, I can't believe that somebody is this cheerful and optimistic. And we slowly get act. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, in your heart of hearts, like this is just who Diane is. Like she genuinely is this sweet. Like she is the sugar of all of the sugar and spice. 
And she is the um, kind of girl who I've met, uh, you know, especially working out in L.A., you end up working with like, you know, other women who are models and actresses and just naturally just beautiful, gorgeous women who are also just real life walking Disney princesses who are really that beautiful and that nice. I think because life has never been cruel to them almost. Mm -hmm. And so they don't have a reason (laughs) to be mean to anyone. And they're just genuinely rays of sunshine. You want to find something wrong with them almost. (laughs) It's this weird envy where you're like, no, there's got to be something. But no, they're just really that sweet. Yeah. And like, this is actually another aspect of her that, I had issues with when we watched the trailer, which is that the trailer kind of portrays them as like dumb girls or her as like a dumb blonde because it's 2001 and that's what we did. But that's not who she is. She's just a teenager and she does not know how to rob a bank or be a mother. She's in uncharted waters for like everything she's going through in this movie. And that doesn't make her dumb. It makes her inexperienced. And she handles Mm -hmm. all that extremely well. What? But all of our paperwork's here. My school records and Jack's football records. Let me explain something. No, wait. Did I say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye that we will never, ever miss a payment? Uh, yes. Yes, you did. (laughs) I think I know where this one's going. Um, listen. I'm willing to put up my papers on my GTO. Now, she's got a few miles on her, but she looks great. (laughs) I'm sure, son, but, um... Oh, ow! (laughs) He's twisting my arm. I'm going to throw in the speakers, too. Why don't you just have your parents come in and get the loan, and then they can give you the money? With all due respect, ma'am, Jack and Diane Bartlett, (laughs) do not accept charity. We are two young, able-bodied Americans. We're not looking for a handout. We're looking for a hand up. Give us food, and we'll be hungry tomorrow. But give us corn, the kind you plant, not eat, and we'll grow it, and uh, um, cut it and, uh, you know, eat it. I agree. And I'm glad, Chelsea, that you brought up this kind of like Disney princess energy because she definitely feels to me like if Elle Woods and then Amy Adams is Giselle from Enchanted. Like, yes, had a baby. I was also <laughs> gonna say Amy Adams. Weirdly, I was gonna say Amy Adams in Drop a Gorgeous, her cheerleader oh, also character. That. But yeah, Amy <laughs> Adams in general, the nicest woman in Hollywood. I fe- I've For heard real, um, yeah. and also just equally as bright eyed and just huge, like thousand watt smile. Yeah, like she she really is perfect. And there's the you know the wonderful play on words that. She and James Marsden are Jack and Diane, which is, you know, the all-American kids. Like, that is clever. Um, (laughs) It just makes me really, really happy. But uh, the other, like, de facto female lead in this movie is our narrator, which is Marla Sokoloff as Lisa. And I don't know about the rest of you, but Marla Sokoloff, I feel so bad for this because she has been doing so many wonderful projects in Throughout her entire life, but she is forever Gia in Full House to me. Like, she is bad girl who convinces Stephanie to smoke cigarettes in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I See, I didn't watch Full House, um, so uh, I don't have that reference point, but I can uh, exactly picture what that character is. <laughs> oh, yeah. She wore plaid. That's how you know she's a bad <laughs> right. girl. <laughs> she's a grungy 90s kid. <laughs> she really was, though, and she had, like, the biggest hair. She was so cool. Oh, my gosh. Um, so like, the girl's bathroom at school is her kingdom. 
Oh, it really <laughs> was. And so whenever I see her in this where, you know, she now has, you know, she she wants to be Diane. Like, let's be real. That's who she's trying to model herself after. She mm-hmm. has almost this like borderline 60s hairstyle because in 2001, the 60s like kind of came yes. back in a weird way. Uh, mm-hmm. Can we please do that again? I love it. I love the weird <laughs> 90s, 60s Austin Powers kind of aesthetic. <laughs> We, it's a good look, and I think it's a good look for like a lot of different body types too. Yes. Which, to me, that's the sign of a good look. Hmm. Hmm. Because I mean, sixties so, fashion. It's like you look at stuff like I mean, all of Mad Men. Everyone mm-hmm. looked amazing on that show because the clothing just. Anyway, I won't derail <laughs> us with uh, discussions <laughs> of the costuming on Mad Men. <laughs> so Chelsea, how do you feel about this Lisa character? She, I feel like this is such a stock type from this era of movies. The always a brunette, um, brunette or at least not blonde kind of character that really resents everything that is happening in the film. Um, I think of uh, like a Janice from Mean Girls, which is a little bit later. Um, Or what's her face from Clueless? I can't remember her name. Oh, Amber. Yes, Amber. Or um, I don't know. I or uh, Selma Blair in Legally Blonde, who the, mm-hmm. that trope kind of gets turned on its head at the end, which is another reason that movie is good. But it's it, this stock type is just so interesting to me, and this movie is so mean to her. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Like they constantly talk about how Lisa is insinuated to have gone away for summer break. And gotten a lot of work done. Like she even mm-hmm. jokes, like I did a lot of work on myself, but misspeaks and says I got a lot of work done. Um, yeah, she kind of feels like the movie making fun of a I'm not like other girls girl. Yes, I think that's exactly it. And knowing that the script comes from the same person who wrote Drop Dead Gorgeous, that's Lona Williams. She went under a pseudonym in this movie because she said a lot of her original script was changed in kind of the holy shit post-Columbine, we can't have a movie like this. So that's why it's under a pseudonym, just because of those changes. And I'm glad that they at least respected that of her. But these movies do have such like sibling energy. Like they feel like cousins in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, And it makes sense to think of Lisa as this character that's sort of dismantling the not like other girls trope because that's the kind of storytelling that Lona Williams was interested in. Yeah, and I think that's why I... Because uh, as much as I didn't love rom-coms growing up, I loved Drop Dead Gorgeous. I've seen that movie so, so many times. Same. And I think because <laughs> that movie is a bunch of girl characters who ultimately all become friends and feel very supportive of each other, aside from Denise <laughs> Denise Richards, although she's got <laughs> maybe, I think, my favorite performance of hers ever. Um, it's mine, too. <laughs> it's so damn good. Uh And I don't know, I think that resonated for me uh, when you take into account the film's like humor too, because it is very dark and kind of mean. And that just felt more uh, accurate or that spoke to me more in terms of like me and my friends. We weren't like just, you know, I I guess when I watched like rom-coms and like maybe some of the girl friendships and that, I'm like, oh, all these are just, you know, they're talking about boys and that's it. Or they're all about, you know, the characters stereotypically love shopping or clothes and drop dead gorgeous and movies like that just feel a bit more nuanced and they give these characters more of an inner life, I guess. 
Yeah, I agree completely. And that's why I think I gravitate towards these movies as well, because, you know, talking about this movie and kind of its meanness, it never feels mean spirited, but it is harsh. And that is how my friends and I used to communicate all the time. We would constantly be ribbing each other. And I think that is a much more authentic experience than the just deliriously like you go girl like hashtag girl boss feminism like that Mm -hmm. isn't Mm -hmm. a real thing and I think that's why it always reads so hollow for so many people because that's just not reality like we absolutely would say things to each other like did you hang out with Carmen Electra this summer because you got some of her tits on you like (laughs) that's how we would communicate with each other and because this is a movie from 2001 not all of the language has aged well but as we have said on every movie we've ever covered from this time period that is how it was socially acceptable to talk. It doesn't yes. make it okay. It doesn't mean we're giving them a pass, but we're not going to pretend like that was not a very common way of communicating. So the fact that Lisa calls Bruce the F-slur like six times in this movie, um, that's accurate. Like that character yeah. would have said that to him. And, you know, jokes mm-hmm. on her, he's not gay and they get married. Or yeah. he's, he's at least like not completely gay. He's at least bi. We don't know how he identifies. He never tells us. But they get married. So oh, there man. you go. Yeah. I I think it, it's so weird now being in my 30s and realizing, oh, my God, there's so many people who are just full-ass adults now who don't have a living memory of what it was like in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was mean. The culture was mean. And we all... Like, the way we talked was just completely different. And, you know, I it, it's hard because you don't want to make excuses for that. But also it's a thing where uh, the example I always use is uh, so I had the uh, best of like Saturday Night Live DVDs I was obsessed with. I don't know if either of you had those in the oh, early 2000s. Them. Yeah, I had the <laughs> yep, best. Of, I had them. OK, so on the best of Will Ferrell, which was on constant rotation at my house. He, do you remember the Robert Goulet sketch? Where oh he, my gosh, yes. <laughs> okay, there's one where he sings the thong song and he drops a hard N-word in that. And it's, you know, it, that's the culture at the time is it's just when you have Saturday Night Live and it's Will Ferrell, everyone loves Will Ferrell. You have celebrities like that and no one is telling you, a teenager, that that's like not okay and not funny Mm -hmm. and that's like the most extreme example I can think of but that's Mm -hmm. just what it was to be alive then is like that's just what the culture it sucked man looking back on it you know oh yeah and I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that that's a that's a really good example because it's Saturday Night Live like it is an institution in American culture it is one of the most watched shows of all time in history it was on basic cable like this isn't a channel that you had to pay for and that's the kind mm-hmm. of language that was not only acceptable but encouraged. And, you know, again, it doesn't make it okay. We should not have been using those words. But that the culture was encouraging it. So whenever people discover movies like Sugar and Spice for the first time, um, I see it on TikTok all the time where, like, a 25-year-old will be like, I found this movie. Oh, my God, it's so problematic. And it's like the entire decade was problematic. <laughs> yeah. Like- Everything you're pulling from this is going to be problematic. I I don't know how to explain this to you. I know that it is difficult to explain because it's something just beyond comprehension, mm-hmm. but that's the way that it was and it was 
awful. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, you just have to remember that I, I guarantee there will be things now that we look back on in like 10 years and it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe we all were just saying that, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And because language is always evolving and that's that's part of it. And oh, goodness. And it doesn't you know, I, I don't want us to like judge any of the characters for it. Like I very well could be a person who takes a stance as, you know, an openly gay person and be like, I don't like Lisa because she uses harmful language. But I also know that like her character is not meant to be that way. Her character is meant to be brash and harsh. And this is the language that was assigned to that character to express that. And again, we have much better ways of doing that now. But in 2001, mm-hmm. it was shorthand. And that's kind of what happened here. A heinous crime has been committed here. Should you decide that your testimony might jeopardize your personal safety... Look, Sibowitz, I said I'd tell you everything. Just hoping we can finish this up before menopause kicks in. <laughs> Let's start with the one that thinks her shit don't stink. Diane Weston. She's like a goddamn poster child for high school. Morning, sunshine. Remember, these are the best days of your life. So far. She's the A-Squad captain. She stole that title from me. You should charge her with that. Yeah, and the thing is with Lisa, though, that I think is is worth bringing up is that she operates so entirely as, like, a counterbalance to Diane, who's trying to, like, be the perfect American cheerleader and wants to be the perfect wife and wants to be a good mom and wants to do all these other things. She's leading by example versus Lisa, who has been, like, severely scorned. And I think as far as like a, a storytelling vehicle works with her, this movie is told through her perspective. So mm-hmm. it I think like as like a device, that's why it's so campy and that's why certain things are so over the top. And that's why it's like everyone was so mean to me, but I'm justified because I should have been on the team. And I think it all makes more sense when you realize that like this is her recounting these stories. And like obviously like it's it's a loosey goosey way of like telling this because she uses a lot of out of character knowledge that she it, wasn't it there makes for. No sense. It, the whole <laughs> framing device makes no sense. It's incredible. No. But there's also like the idea of like, you know, high school gossip. So it's a version of the truth. But like you're also probably not supposed to think about that too much. But I think that's why the tone of the movie is what it is. And so much of it is because it's coming from this specific character and how that's really, really important for understanding why this movie is the way it is. I think you're totally right on that, too. And I think that's why so many of these characters do feel a little bit cartoony in their depiction, because teenagers are unreliable narrators. Um, That's just a thing. And all of these characters do feel a little bit larger than life. And we can see that when we think about the the actual A squad. So we have Mina Savari as Kansas, who I love dearly, and she's supposed to be kind of like the white trash with a heart of gold kind of girl. And she is a little rough around the edges and that's why she's really mouthy. And that's why she kicks the door in the, in the bathroom stall and is swearing a lot more (laughs) than the other girls. Um, And I think like, that's also very much a retelling from Lisa's perspective of like, Oh, this girl is really harsh or Mm -hmm. Hannah, who is the, the virginal Christian girl played by Rachel Blanchard, who is like going to be a sleeper for somebody who ends up on this show a lot. Cause she pops up in a lot of teen movies in kind of these like tertiary roles, but her character seems like over the top goody goody. Uh, we have Melissa George as Cleo Miller, who is like this beautiful bombshell. Who's obsessed with Conan O'Brien. That character resonates with me the (laughs) most 
Truly. Oh. Okay, explain this because I'm very curious. <laughs> um, so this character for me, and this is how I know this movie is written by a former teenage girl, is like in my experience being a teenager, you know, like, yeah, I had crushes on boys at school. But when I think about the celebrities I had crushes on, it was all like just older dudes, you know, like mm-hmm. random older guys. I was obsessed with Ewan McGregor, although back then I guess he wasn't too much you know, he was. I'm trying to think of how old he was in Star Wars. I guess when you're like 13, he seems like a very old man, you know, but I yes. still right. was obsessed with him. <laughs> and it's a thing where like teenage girls, as much as I'm sure many other teenage girls had crushes on whoever studios were kind of pushing or marketing as like the new teen heartthrob kind of thing. I don't know. Teenage girls are weird and horny for like random people that just happen to like be their sexual awakening. And so the Mm -hmm. idea of this girl being obsessed with randomly Conan O'Brien is so real to me. (laughs) Oh, no, that's very real. We like barely touched on it in our uh, Princess Bride episode. But Christopher Sarandon has been my alpha omega since day Uh, one in Fright Night where he is Forty in that movie, oh my God, but and he's I was so like twelve. Hot. He's yeah. so hot, and yeah. like I don't even like men. And he had that like, oh that my God, power over me. A better example, okay, a better example for me than you and McGregor. Uh, this is more corollary, I think, to the Conan O'Brien of it all. God, I was obsessed with Willem Dafoe and Spider-Man. That's like an old <laughs> dude, but he like I was young, and that was like a oh my God. Uh, why I, I think I'm supposed to be into James Franco here, but the Green Goblin's making me feel weird, you know? Oh, even when Willem Dafoe is younger, like in Streets of Fire or something, mm-hmm. like that man's face has years on it that it, yeah. it should not. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'm glad that we are all in agreement that this is a very real experience. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so some of our other characters, so we have Sarah Marsh as Lucy, who's kind of like the brain. Uh, she is a little bit more conscious of what they're doing because she's about to go to Harvard. Um, I also want to shout out that Sarah Marsh, this actress, she's in the Iron Maidens, which is an all-female tribute group to Iron Maiden, and it rules. Oh, that's (laughs) awesome. I did not know that. I love that. I love that about her because she's playing this kind of like... You know, I don't know, guys, like, kind of skeptic of the group. And, like, yet she probably has the most, like, Metal Street cred of anybody in this movie. That's Love so that funny. for her. And then uh, we have Alexandra Holden as Fern, the Terminator. And Alexandra Holden is a person who got brought over from Drop Dead Gorgeous. Yes! Uh, she is the the former Mount Rose American teen princess, the one with the eating don't disorder. Cry out and I love that she gets to be here because I love Alexandra Holden I think she is a criminally underused actress she's so funny she is so funny and even in her adult years she has a really nice appearance in the movie In a World about a female voiceover artist where she plays like a stepmother who's the same age as the children of the guy she's married Uh but she gets to bust out her random like Minnesota accent every once in a while and it's like oh my heart she lives (laughs) (laughs) So we do have this like wonderful group of girls, but it would be remiss to not talk about the Jack of the Jack and Diane situation. Mm. Let's talk about James motherfucking Marsden. (laughs) So Chelsea, I'll let you start on this. How do you feel about Jack? He's just, 
He's so fucking good in this. Like, he has no right being this good in this movie. Like, I forgot he was in this. And then he showed up and I gasped. I was so excited. He just, (laughs) you have to pair him, like, in a comedy especially where he's playing a himbo. It's funny you brought up Amy Adams and Enchanted because he's, like, the only other person and she's the only other person, Amy Adams, who, like, in that movie just play off each other like they are cartoons and Mm -hmm. similarly in this like you can only put someone like a marley shelton to just even you know you anyone else would just be drowned by this performance because he just is so cartoony (laughs) and he's got these huge blue eyes and this doofy ass smile you have to have someone who is equally like almost yeah like a like a a caricature drawing come to life it's incredible Harmony, how about you? I, I mean, I'm happy whenever James Marsden shows up in things. We we heaped nothing but praise on him when we did our Hairspray <gasps> 2007 episode. Yeah, oh my even, gosh. Even if we didn't have the kindest things to say about that movie as a whole, we all agreed like, oh no, he's incredible. He um, is I, Corny <laughs> Collins. Oh, oh yeah. He's so good. In that role, he sits there like, I was born to do this. Mm-hmm. Look at me. He's so commanding. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the energy he brings to everything, which he's like a big, loud puppy dog who's just excited to be there. And like, if you look at his filmography, he did this movie after X-Men. Oh, wow. And X-Men is probably his worst role because he's so horribly miscast mm-hmm. as Cyclops because Cyclops is so boring. Yeah, like he's really subdued. Yeah, like it's it's not a good fit for him. Like a million people could be Cyclops, but not a million people could do James Marsden roles. And he is so good as this because I think the moment that encapsulates his entire character is when they're going grocery shopping <laughs> for the first time. And he's just gushing about cereal mascots yes! and grabbing everything without a second thought and just throwing it into the cart. Like that is who he is in most roles, but like... That is this character yeah, in he, a 30 second window where he grabs the Captain Crunch and he's like, see, Cocoa Puffs are better than Captain Crunch because Captain Crunch tears up the roof of your mouth. Babies aren't born with this knowledge. Yeah, it's true. It's so true. <laughs> he is so painfully cute. And th- he has a couple moments in this that I have to highlight just for my own sanity. So one, it's after he gets uh, kicked in the face when he meets (laughs) Diane for the first time and they're Mm -hmm. carrying him away and he just has this glazed look of joy on his face like, oh, Uh (laughs) she's so beautiful. And you're like, okay, I love you. You're fantastic. Uh, That is a great moment for him uh, when they are watching the like National Geographic video of animals giving birth (laughs) and he looks horrified um he's really selling it there in a way that just cracks me up but i (laughs) genuinely think his like strongest moment in the whole movie is when they exchange christmas gifts and oh my god i was (laughs) crying laughing he's so excited to give her the the ring with no diamond in it and he's so romantic and so happy and then he receives his gift and has to have like the goddamn gift of the magi moment of like Mm -hmm. i sold the car and he's fighting to look positive and optimistic but you can tell his soul is ripping in two and you're like you know what no one can play a himbo like James Marsden at first I thought it was gonna be a thing where this was almost like a character turn for him where he was gonna be like but babe I like my car the way it is and then we start to maybe get a glimpse of like oh is he not as 
sweet and and fun as we thought? Like, is he going to I was worried he was going to start to shift into like a jerk bag husband um, Mm -hmm. after they, you know, get together and they're living in the apartment. And that I was worried that like, oh, she's going to realize she's maybe trapped with this guy. And that's when she has to rob the bank. But no, it's because he sold the car. (laughs) I'm glad he just stays really sweet the whole time. Uh, Even when, uh, oh God, when they're my favorite moment of his or one of them anyways, when they're at the bank trying to convince the uh, the bank to give them a loan. And he just goes instantly into car salesman mode because that's just- He's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, it's so perfect. Yeah, I'm glad that he just stays a sweet puppy the whole movie. I was pleasantly surprised. He makes me feel like an old woman in this because watching this, I'm like, oh man, I'm not necessarily like attracted to James Marsden in this. I just really want to pinch his cheeks, you know? I just think he's adorable and I just want to call him a nice young man, you know? <laughs> and I think that Sugar and Spice might be one of the first movies that actually understands what to do with James Marsden because obviously he's done a ton of stuff, but Harmony, you're right in that I think he's really miscast in X-Men. And then he's also the lead of a movie that I love and defend dearly, but I'm desperate for the director's cut of, which is Disturbing Behavior, where he's playing like kind of brooding. And I think they were like, he's painfully handsome. Let's have Mm -hmm. him be brooding. But then you get to Sugar and Spice where he gets to be this like, you know, Labrador retriever of a human. And it's like, boom, that's it. That's the character that this guy's supposed to play. And I love that this is the movie that figured it out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's just an absolute delight. I would so, love to make like a morality kind of grid of like like James Marsden would be at one end and like Killian Murphy would be at the other end of like <laughs> like strong cheekbones, blue eye, dark hair. I'm trying to think of who else would go on that. Like Matt Bomer maybe would be on like one axis of that. Aaron Taylor Johnson's in there somewhere. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh my gosh, and I do want to make this little access part. That would be so funny. <laughs> yeah, I think that this movie is just really remarkably cast in in all of these ways, and I love the appearance of Sean Young as Kansas's incarcerated <gasps> mom. Yes, I popped for that. I was very excited to see her show up. Because when I saw this movie for the first time as a kid, I did not know who Sean Young was because I hadn't watched Blade Runner because I was, I don't know, 12. (laughs) Um, So it's one of those things where you go back and watch these movies as an adult when you've seen more things and you're like, wait, no, this is really inspired casting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Once you know anything about Sean Young's history as a human being, Mm -hmm. you're like, no, this is smart. I like this a lot. Um, I don't know if I had processed that she was in Ace Ventura yet. I don't know if that was a thing. I think my little... Preteen brain didn't make that connection. I yet. think I also never made. I all I still forget that's her sometimes. I think maybe because I now as an adult associate her with Blade Runner that I just mm-hmm. forget that that's also her in Ace Ventura. She's such a good comedic actress. Agreed. All criminally underused as well. There's a lot of people in this movie that I'm like, why don't we use you more? You're mm-hmm. very talented. Um, I don't know. This movie didn't make enough money for people to see the merit in casting people more often, I suppose. That's a great point. That's a very, very good point. Um, so something that I wanted to discuss because I find it really interesting is obviously Scream was this meta slasher film and really brought to the table like the power of movies. And Part of the core heart of this story with this bank robbery is that they're using movies to learn how to not get caught (laughs) in this 
robbery of a bank branch. Um, mm-hmm. So, Harmony, I was curious if you could speak to, like, how how you navigate this aspect of the movie. Uh, well, I mean, they have this idea because they're wa- having, like, a sleepover and watching Point Break, you know, as girls do, I assume. <laughs> At every sleepover, you have to watch Point Break. Hey, that's where I saw it for the first time, so Yeah, that it. wouldn't be See? too out of nowhere yeah oh i'm i'm only half being facetious like uh-huh. i fully believe that everyone watches this at sleepovers <laughs> though i think that it is uh i think it's a wrong statement to say like oh shut up and look at keanu when patrick swayze at his sexiest is right mm-hmm. there that's very true the hair is so, wonderful not so that aside i think that that's uh fascinating because where else would you learn about you know, how to rob a bank like uh, like, even if you want to reference Scream, you sort of saw it as, like, the basis with which copycat killers would then do real-life actions. It kind of makes sense for this to be something that people are mimicking and seeing it translated back into a movie like this. And if nothing else, they're like, they're learning from mistakes, which I believe, uh, which girl is it? The, um Lucy, who says, like, yeah, um, these are all actually terrible plans. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, she's I think she watches Heat, which my favorite shot of this movie maybe is her watching Heat on the see-through blue Apple computer. I wanted one of those so <laughs> bad. <laughs> it just wow, the aesthetic there is impeccable. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that it does kind of follow the scream logic of, like, movies don't create psychos, they make them more creative. It's like, Mm -hmm. movies did not make them want to become bank robbers. The issue of Diane being a pregnant teenager with no money and the system failing her and there's no support for her, that's what made her want to be a bank robber Mm -hmm. because she needs the money and she needs the funds and the movies are just helping her do that. So in a very weird way... Like, I feel like Sugar and Spice and Scream would make a really good double feature. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And it's like, I don't know, it's kind of like a nice, like, oh, look, here's Marley Shelton. She'll be in this franchise later. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You you lead in with Sugar and Spice because it's the PG-13 one. Then you go to Scream because it's R-rated. Though, BJ, you threw a fit about this movie because you thought it was R-rated and they cut one scene and you went on this entire tirade about it. Yes, I want to hear about this. (laughs) Yes, okay, so I did throw a fit and I was absolutely that fucking white lady who added a brand on Twitter but <laughs> I hadn't seen this movie in a while and this is unfortunately a physical media copy that uh, I lost in the great separation before Harmony and I got together when I lost my entire movie catalog oh. just the worst like I'm way more upset oh. about losing that than anything in my sure. life <laughs> um, so we we rented Sugar and Spice on Prime Video and we're watching it, and since this is a movie I've seen a million times, I'm, like, doing research. I'm just, you know, looking up things. And I it like, caught me dead in my tracks where I went, they cut something. And Harmony's like, what? I was like, they cut something. There's an entire scene before they go to prom when Jack's parents show up to meet Diane's parents, and Diane's parents are, like, out of control and weird and talking about Diane's mom's, ha- like, having double Ds, and he... Diane's dad tells Jack to go light a fire under her like they're super inappropriate and weird and it's not there what the hell why isn't it there and I went to the point where I looked up the script online and lo and behold that scene was cut from the prime video edit I still don't know why it's not there but 
But another thing we noticed is that the subtitles of this movie are also edited. And yeah, yeah, the language, again, it's not super great, but it's very strange that when Lisa is calling Bruce like the F slur, it was then cut to like, hey, Bruce, stop being such a gay. And in a weird way, that's like more offensive (laughs) to me. Like just call me a slur at that point. Um, And it was just very strange. Or in some instances, they just cut the word out completely. Um, My... Theory is they just took captions from a uh, version of this that aired on TV and just Ooh. plopped them on top of the movie because it probably would have been cheaper and faster than making an all new captions file for the uncensored version. That's what I think happened because they replace so many weird words that aren't even that offensive. They replace like in, in the version I was watching, they were replacing like shit and damn and mm hmm. So that's what made me suspicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Harmony pointed out that my favorite line, shit fire Kansas, was shoot fire Kansas. And yeah. I'm like, that doesn't roll as nice. Like, mm-hmm. that's not correct. That, that's some shit that my mom would say where it's like, hey, when you go to school, don't say sucks. Say shoot. And I'm like, yeah, that won't get me made fun of at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, that's such a, like, a, like a, a friendly, like, no, don't, honey, language. Those, <laughs> th- those are big people words. It feels, it feels patronizing to look at the subtitles when I'm hearing the actual swears at the same moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's like infantilizing a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It totally is. And this is just as always an evergreen reminder to support physical media so that this sort of thing doesn't happen. Um, We did have somebody reply to me and they said that Sugar and Spice, when it came out on DVD, did have like an unedited version. So maybe that scene wasn't in the theatrical version and I've only ever seen the unedited version. I don't know. Either way, if it's on a streaming service, it's very strange that it would not be the unedited version. That's, That's just weird to me. Yeah. Yeah. I also ran into that with um, the Wicker Man, the remake. Uh, The scene with the bees is not in any version that you can watch online. Oh, yeah, because that didn't make the uh, original release of the movie. That's like an alternate cut. Yes. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. Yeah, it's so weird. (laughs) It's just very, very strange. And and it just feels like this weird form of of censorship like it almost feels like it's doing the thing we talked about earlier where we're using this like modern lens to judge a movie from the past and i think that your your theory that it came from a tv edit is probably the correct answer but mm-hmm. it still just gives me that feeling right mm-hmm. like just knowing that that is what is being provided to me i'm like i don't like this it makes me feel weird i don't like when people mess or edit or censor art in any way i think that it's just Ugh, I don't like it. It gives me the creeps. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, that is in like a weird way, a kind of form of lost media. If you are someone who genuinely needs the captions to watch something and that is the only version of this you can find, you're getting a different version of the movie. Yeah. Or like even seeing like more modern releases, like 4K releases where it's like, oh, they they changed the brightness and they smoothed everything out and all these other little changes that just like. It, it, it's almost like what people criticize George Lucas for, but for the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And it's you, it's getting more and more difficult to look at like specific versions. The way I actually asked uh, BJ, because I had revisited an album that I hadn't listened to since high school. And the version I had on my iPod forever was ripped from LimeWire. So it was there were some demos mixed in there that mm-hmm. I didn't realize were demos. And it was like 
really compressed, but it was a punk album. So it actually kind of made it sound better than like the really polished version uh-huh. I heard streaming just while I was doing dishes the other day. And I said, like, BJ, like, maybe this was a thing for you, but, like, I have specific affinity for, like, shitty versions of movies where, like, people say, oh, well, why don't you get, like, the n- the nice new versions of Tremors instead of, like, the VHS copy <laughs> that you have or the DVD that you got in, like, 2002. And I'm like, I don't know. I It's it's a Western, kind of. It, it's grainy. I like that appeal of it. I don't need it to be super polished. What am I going to do? Like, see more pores on Kevin Bacon's face? I don't need that. Yeah. I have specific affinity for like a VHS recording we have of movies growing up where like you get hyped because hey we're going to commercial and then there's that same commercial for like I don't know Applebee's or Bob (laughs) Evans that you have seen hundreds of times in this exact same spot and it's worse and I kind of love that about it yeah for sure it reminds me how like there's there's Disney movies like they're animated movies where they will uh, re-release them on, like, Blu-ray, and they basically go through and they update and clean up the animation, and it yeah. usually just looks worse. <laughs> uh-huh. It's it's kind of like they just painted over it, but with, yes. like, motion smoothing. It's it looks so terrible. It's so weird, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really strange. The whole situation, it did remind me of there was a release of Rocky Horror Picture Show at one point where some of the stuff was cleaned up, and that then made some of the most popular call-outs um, unnecessary. Uh, like, there's one where there's a piece of, like, film burn on Susan Sarandon's arm when she's a statue, and usually you would shout, like, hey, there's a fly on her arm or whatever. But they cleaned it up, and everyone's like, wait a minute, why would you oh, do that? That's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I I didn't realize you literally meant, like, they visually cleaned it up. Yeah, oh my God. they, like, edited that part out, and people were pissed. And wow. it's like, well, yeah, we've been shouting at the screen yeah. for 40 years. Why would you do this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's just we- very interesting whenever we whenever we do these episodes and it's a movie that we're streaming or one that's, like, a little bit harder to find. Like, we had to wait to do Drop Dead Gorgeous because for the longest time it wasn't available on streaming. It's the reason we've still not done Spice World because we want to do titles that are accessible for people to go back and rewatch. And it was really frustrating when we go to rewatch this movie that, you know, we have such an affinity for and to see that the the most easily accessible version of it has incorrect subtitles. So any of our friends that are hard of hearing, like that sucks for you. And I hate that that's your experience. But then it's also missing scenes. I mean, scene, it's missing a scene. Nothing else was cut. It's just that one piece, which I don't understand why. The mm-hmm. movie's like 82 minutes long. It's not like we were in trouble for time length or mm-hmm. anything. It's 45 seconds of a scene. Um, and to me, like it establishes a lot of who those parental characters are and also why their reaction is so out of touch with who they are because they're both so like sexually forward and encouraging of their sexuality. So then when she announces that she's pregnant and they respond by kicking them out, it's like, wait, your morality is not in line here. You were very Mm -hmm. okay with them having sex, but now you're suddenly not okay that there are consequences to the sex. Mm, That's a little strange, but yeah, Mm -hmm. that's weird how that changes their characters because for me with with that scene removed the the way I kind of interpreted the the joke of the parents is like they love the idea that their kids are are getting married because that's like the normal order in which to to do things and you know maybe they're a more conservative family and it's like great get them married young and but the idea that mm-hmm. they then 
oh no, they were having sex this whole time. Well, that's they're too young for that, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh yeah, like they're the high school sweethearts. So like you want the cheerleader and the football player to end up together mm-hmm. and have happy little lives, but you don't want them to have premarital sex, much less pregnancies. That doesn't fit with the very like all American girl image that we have of Marley Shelton. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's it. A bank robbery. A big pile of money and my little family to be could get our heads above water. Oh my god, I read about this. It's called pregnancy insanity. Look, I might be moody, I might be gassy, but I am perfectly sane. Think about it. In school they tell us dreams can come true, right? Right. But they don't tell us how. Well, thanks to Keanu, I figured it out. Money makes your dreams come true. Listen, Kansas, I know you dream of springing your mom someday. Stop, you're gonna make me cry. If the OJ trial taught us anything, it taught us that in America, you can cut somebody's head off and still be found innocent. As long as you have enough money. Well, your mom only shot a guy. And Cleo, I know you dream of an all-leather apartment with Conan. (laughs) I overheard the school shrink telling the lunch lady. And Hannah, you could give your share to the church or maybe buy one of those starving kids that Sally Struthers advertises? Or I could buy my own horse. <laughs> or that. So something else this movie does that I really appreciate is, as much as this is a high school movie, because obviously they are cheerleaders, this movie does not spend a lot of time in the actual high school. And when it does, it's in common areas like cafeterias or a football field or the gym where it's like the whole school is there. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of this like classroomy type stuff, which I think sometimes can be feel very samey with a lot of mm-hmm. other things. This movie falls under that umbrella that I love so much where teenagers are allowed to exist in their own ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So, Harmony, I'm curious if you could talk to some of those aspects. Uh, Well, there's a few things. One, I think it's extremely samey to just have scenes set in classrooms because classrooms are so structured that there's really not a lot you can do with characters when you have them in teen movie after teen movie. Like, you can't rewrite this scene too much because these kids aren't even supposed to be talking. Hey, occasionally they sit in a circle. You get like a really cool teacher that lets them sit in a circle. Yeah, or they whisper to each other because they're bad kids and then the teacher yells at them. Like, there's only, yeah, yeah, it's it's very limited in what you can do in like a classroom scene. That's so true. Yeah. So, like, I kind of love that this movie. Uh, okay, well, apparently there's a chainsaw outside right now. And if you all can hear that, I promise I'm not being murdered. Anyway, it's appropriate um, for my guest appearance, I think. Yeah, see, there you go. It's perfect. It's ambiance. There you go. Free of charge. So seeing this being uh, a movie where we're allowed to see them sort of move around freely and have their own space and their own autonomy as high school kids is not only refreshing, but it's almost like a uh, like a post high school film in that they're out on their own. They have their own place. They have their own space. They are struggling, uh, but they're have like they're they're figuring out and moving on with their lives and. That's a really, really important part of coming of age that I like because, you know, in most of these movies, the name of this podcast is, you know, it, this ends at prom. Like being a teenager, being a kid, it ends at prom and then you move on to your next part. But the next part is chaos and it's all in, up in the air, especially like in the new millennium when college is outrageously expensive and we're going to get hit with a few recessions. So this is just a, a really 
fun way of addressing and writing a story about that. Yeah, the kind of bubble of high school getting popped. I mean, that's why I think they're the cheerleader and the football player, because those are stereotypically the two people in high school that everyone kind of gets a weird glee out of like, yeah, the high school bubble's over and now you're out in the real world and you, you know, kind of you kind of revel in the idea that like, oh, they're not going to amount to anything better than they were in high school, you know. I, I think that that's a like not a like other girls kind of mentality mm-hmm. to it. That's a very mm-hmm. Lisa way of like, oh, you want them to fail. Yeah. But it's also looking at it in that he's like the quarterback and she's the head cheerleader. These are the people who high school tells you are the ones who are going to have their lives fast tracked and figured out mm-hmm. and they're struggling. So what chance do you have? Right. Yeah. It also, this movie also does the thing, too, that I love where everything in high school is the most important thing ever, which when you're in high school, it is. But like yeah. this exaggerates it to the like the the assembly where it's like they're uh, running for uh, it's like homecoming king and like all the students in the audience are just so into it and it's just the emotions are hyped up to like such an insane degree like the mm-hmm. the nerd who gets up and is like no damn it it's our turn we're gonna have a nerd be homecoming king instead put brains over brawn he's just so passionate about it mm-hmm. i want the 4k dyke to win <laughs> yes oh my gosh the i f- love her <laughs> agriculture <laughs> oh my gosh like she came from drop dead gorgeous on accident She's like really the she's did. like the tractor, the one who dies on the tractor. <laughs> they would be best friends. Or oh, they could, Tammy Curry, R.I.P. Yes. Or they could be in love. Whatever. That's true. They could be in love because Tammy Curry, not straight. Um, <laughs> That's my new headcanon. I want these two to end up together. Yeah. <laughs> so, Harmony, I love that you brought up this idea of like the fast tracked life because one, we do get to kind of dismantle that with the fact that they become, you know, teen parents. But there are aspects of their life that are still fast tracked. Um because Jack applies for a bunch of jobs and gets fired from all of them because he's terrible at them. And oh, yeah. then he finally finds home at <laughs> the video store and he fully in his interview is like, I'm bad at this. And because you're nerds, I'm going to tell everybody if you like scratch your ass. So uh, that's what it is. But they are so mesmerized by him because he's a football player. <laughs> That they hire him because they want to hang out with him after school. <laughs> so like, I love all their scenes together so much. Oh, they're so funny. And like, I love that these two characters are so unapologetically just dorky, but they are done so in ways that don't feel like the 1980s dorks. That, yeah. Like, is it is it just one of the guys where the kid hangs out with a lizard in his pocket? Is yes. that the movie? Okay, yeah, there's... <laughs> Just one of the guys with a nerdy kid has a pocket protector with a lizard in it, like where it's just so over the top. Whereas these kids show their nerdiness in ways where they're like, we're going to ask him questions. And the other one gives him permission and like references his D&D character. Yes, I was literally about to say, he goes like, proceed, Dungeon Master Quan. And then they both kind (laughs) of laugh. And then it just, it's so great. Yeah, it's just it's effortless at that point where I'm like, I know exactly who these characters are. Or, you know, he has the kid who is in love with Cleo and he's like, will you just say my name? And she goes, Ted. And he's just (sighs) just so into it. I'm like, yeah, no, I know who this kid is. This is a realistic depiction. It's also really funny. Yeah. Um, Yeah. These um, (laughs) these nerds aren't like 80s nerds where we don't know how to write them. And they're like extreme, like stereotypes of like Revenge of the Nerd types. These are like 
post-Kevin Smith nerds. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah, that's a great way to put it. And I think that that's a really interesting conversation that we obviously don't have to have in this podcast. But I do think that nerdiness and like those types of characters in film definitely shifted after Kevin Smith came to be. I don't think mm-hmm. he realizes that he had that impact on teen movies, but totally. he totally did. Yeah. yeah. The characters like the ones in this movie are so the bridge between like pocket protector poindexter kind of nerd and then where we are now where like nerd is the dominant culture like Mm -hmm. yeah both of those characters like we don't get to see what happens to them after the movie they all probably work in silicon valley well the one becomes uh uh jack's campaign advisor i think it's oh that's right yes the redhead i think or his speech writer i forget That's right. That's right. I I do want to talk about what happens to all of them at the end, because I think that it's great. Uh, Jack does become a senator. What political party do we think Jack is a senator? Ooh, That's a very good question. I mean, he kind of reminds me of like a Kennedy. I wouldn't be surprised if he's like a moderate Democrat. Ooh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that, that I like tracks. that. That tracks a lot. The Kennedy connection, I think that's totally it. Mm-hmm. So th- we've got that going on. Um, we've got Lisa marrying Bruce. <laughs> that's yes. know, great. Um, Good for them. <laughs> Hannah starts a, like a stable or, or like an equestrian oh, thing. Oh, that's cause, right. Because <laughs> she's a horse girl. <laughs> um, Cleo has my favorite. Yep. Because uh, she gets to be in Scream 8. Scream which, 8. I this is we'll my this is my official request to the radio silence guys she for the has love to be of god in it. call Melissa George up and be like look five people will understand this joke but Literally, it will be their favorite joke in the whole movie next time i talk to them i'm bringing this up that's Please. a promise oh my god it's so funny and the fact that she ends up with conan o'brien yeah. shopping for, <laughs> for leather, leather apartment mhm you know what? Follow your dreams. I'm proud of you. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember what happened. Oh, oh, Kansas becomes a lawyer and she gets her mom out of prison. That's right. <laughs> because uh, women who are postpartum can't be held responsible for their <laughs> actions, uh, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Like, they, I love that they all kind of get not just happy endings, but they get happy endings that are so appropriate for who they are as characters because, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, just like Drop Dead Gorgeous, another movie that has an ending of like, hey, here's where they ended up and it's all very appropriate to their characters. Um, it just, I don't know, it makes me feel really happy. I know, and- I like it too. It's it's very, because um, what? That's like a, an- did Animal House kind of start that Yeah, yeah I think that's that? probably where it, I'm sure movies did it beforehand, but yeah. Animal House made it like the thing. That's to what do. I think of. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, and then Which, the like, like it's great. It's one of my favorite like dumb teen tropes. Mm-hmm. Is like you know we see them when we're teen, they're teens. We get to see them coming of age. Now let's see what specifically their things that happened to them has led to. Like I don't want every movie to do it because that's silly and it would get really old. But God, I love it when it does happen. I know. I do too. I forgot that the the uh, the like nerdy one. I forget all their names. But she goes to. Harvard she like ends up she gets that scholarship and goes to Harvard oh yeah Lucy invents a pizza box yeah she invents mm-hmm. a pizza box and then she owns the island of was iguana <laughs> yeah I think so she owns one of like I think like the Bahamas or something yeah. and I in a weird way love that she invents a pizza box and this might be my own fantasy booking but it reminds me so much of 
how Alan Cummings' character in Romy and Michelle invents yes, a special post- kind of like, post-it rubber. note, right? Like the well, they lie like about that. post-it notes. That's but right, he, they lie about post-it. He notes. He invents a special kind of rubber that's used in like athletic footwear. Yeah. So it's one of those things where like they're not having Lucy invent like a rocket ship or something mm-hmm. like ridiculous. They're like, no, she makes her fortune inventing something so small but that everybody has to use mm-hmm. oh yeah that was like I, I don't know if this was a thing in your high schools but coming up that was the thing that like people would sort of instill as like a goal it's like you don't have to be the smartest person you just have to be the person who thinks of like the thing that everyone wants and will use mm-hmm. but no one realizes it you need to be the person who invents the tiny plastic table that goes in the pizza box mm-hmm. And that was always like the specific example of like, be that kind of genius and you're set for the rest of your life. (laughs) Yeah, like invent the like child proof caps on pill bottles or something. Yes, like something like that. Things that are omnipresent. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, goodness. What a great country. (laughs) (laughs) So as we sort of wind down, I really want to talk about the visual language of this film because there's so much clever comedy happening throughout the visuals in this movie. And I know you brought up like the Betty doll masks earlier, which I think are such an incredible design because it's clearly we don't want to get sued by Mattel and have Barbie masks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So then we end up with these like big, scary, like Barbie-esque faces, but with like the 1960s hair. They're Uh, Debbies. They do look like Debbies from the Oblongs. Holy shit. Oh, yeah. Good call. (laughs) (laughs) They look like if if they made Barbie versions of the Debbies. (laughs) But what are some other, like, visual elements to this movie that we think are really interesting? I mean, I love the fact that they all, like, have these American flag outfits that they're wearing to go rob the bank, too. Like, not only are they wearing these kind of blonde, blue-eyed, terrifying masks that I forgot were, like, a whole head kind of deal. I've mm-hmm. In my memory, they were just, like, a party mask they put over their faces. But no, they're these giant rubber heads and they're really scary. Um, and yeah, they're like wearing these kind of, they're almost like dusters made out of the American flag. Yeah. They, they have like duster capes. Yeah. God, when are dusters going to come back? We should bring it back. Yeah. I wore them all the time I in the did 2000s. Too. It was a very 2000s thing. Yes. I'm kind of <laughs> shocked they haven't come back yet because they're so specific. And I have a full length wool duster that I never get to wear because it is California and it yeah. will never get used again. <laughs> God, that, that was like the cozy thing in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was your house sweater. Jealous. Oh, God, it was perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so speaking of the masks, though, I mean, Lucy originally bails because she got her scholarship to Harvard and she doesn't want to jeopardize that. But then she ends up showing up. And I think it is really telling that she shows up wearing a Nixon mask. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's just something about Nixon and then all of these all-American girls going in to, you know, steal money from the grocery store bank branch that just feels just chef's kiss. Like, this is visual poetry in motion. (laughs) Especially because, yeah, like you mentioned, the Betty masks are so 60s looking. It just, Mm -hmm. it's all, yeah, it's all perfect. Like it's clearly Nixon is a like reference to Point Break, mm-hmm. but if you were if this movie was Point Break, there would be people writing entire theses about the meaning of these pregnant nineteen mm-hmm. fifties <laughs> people robbing banks. 
with Richard Nixon. Like <laughs> people are like, oh my God, the symbology. Oh, it's like dog day afternoon. It's brilliant. <laughs> no, it really is though. And then of course they show up with their their homemade craft guns. Yes, the duct tape together guns. (laughs) (laughs) I love that they also hide the guns in what look like, to me, like bouquet boxes. Mm -hmm. Like they're a little bit longer, but that's what those boxes seem like to me. And they're gift wrapped. Like there's so much theatrics to their heist. so good. Mm -hmm. I know. Like, of course, they have to make it all like perfectly cute and visual. And then, yeah, just they think through everything else and then they're like we're using cheerleader lifts to spray paint the cameras it's just perfect <laughs> i also love that they all decided to be pregnant so then that way it would be yeah. giving diane's pregnancy yeah. away which i think is really cute yeah but there's also like a weird political meaning going on there when like a bunch of pregnant women are robbing a bank like yeah exactly mm-hmm. This movie's so much deeper than people give it credit for being. A hundred percent. I do also love the idea, too, that, uh, is it, was it, no, not Lucy. Who's the one who was going to go to Harvard? Who like? Yeah, that's Lucy. It is Lucy. I love the idea that she, I don't know if she had that mask already. I doubt it. But she was like, okay, I'm going to go join them. I got to get a a mask of a president because it's a bank robbery. It's just so great. Yeah, because the uh, the Betty masks came from the uh, the incarcerated women. It's the right. gift from all of their aunts, right? But it's like she could have, you know, put a, a like a ski mask on. But no, she's like, damn it, I have this is theatrics. I have to go get the Nixon mask to wear. We have to match. It has to be like it's almost like going as like a group costume to mm-hmm. a party. This would be yes. a great group costume. Oh God, would it ever? It would be incredible. <laughs> um, Something else, this is like a dumb visual thing, but during the heist, uh, Diane gets sick and has to throw up on the money because mm-hmm. she gets the visual of this like fish display. Um, That's super gross to me. And maybe it's just because I'm deathly allergic to fish. But if I saw just like an open air display of fish at a grocery store, why would I buy that? Like, I know. It's just exposed to people. Yeah, Ew. it's not like beneath anything. And also, I, duh, I just put together that's why she's like washing the money at the end. Oh, mm-hmm. when they're like literally laundering, <laughs> laundering yeah, yeah, money. <laughs> yeah, up all over it. Gross. <laughs> I I want to believe this is one of those situations where they watched a bunch of crime movies and they're all just kind of like in their underwear or like their negligees or whatever. And I don't know if they process that like in crime movies when people are doing like crimes and laundering money, it's so you can't hide any in the clothes. Like when you're dealing cocaine, it's Mm, so you can't mm -hmm. hide any. So that's why you have to be like kind of just exposed. I don't know if it's just, hey, we're having a sleepover and this is just how we hang out. Or this is what you're supposed to do, but they don't realize why. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like (laughs) a little bit of both. Like there's always that kind of imagery of of teenage girls sleepovers and movies where it's like, oh, we're all in our underwear. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I just think that this movie has such powerful visual language. And obviously, a lot of it has to do with the script because Lona Williams is just brilliant. But I do want to shout out Francine McDougal, who directed this movie. Um, Francine doesn't have a ton of credits to her name, but the ones she has are pretty fantastic. Um, As in the Disney Channel original movie, Go Figure, where it is all about a girl who is a a figure skater who wants to play hockey. Um, So that's very fun. I remember that one. 
She also did the Disney Channel original film Cowbells starring Allie and AJ, (laughs) which was Disney's version of The Simple Life, uh, because that's a thing that happened. Um, And she's also directed a bunch of episodes of Imagination Movers, which is a like Disney Junior show with like the Mickey Mouse Club and stuff. Uh, It's a Playhouse Disney show. So she basically made Sugar and Spice. Uh, She directed a documentary about uh, the Charlie's Angels uh, TV series, which I think is really cool. And then she just kind of became a a Disney person. Also, it's not a documentary. It's like a mockumentary, like one of those like dramatized things. Got it. Okay. But yeah, then she just started doing Disney Channel original movies, but they're all ones that I quite enjoy. Um, (laughs) So kudos to you, Francine McDougal. Love your career. Thanks for doing this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that sort of takes us out on Sugar and Spice. So, Harmony, the question, as always, Sugar and Spice is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying them a ticket so they can go on their own? No, this is this is a yes. Um, I actually really enjoy everything this movie does and how snappy it is with, like, no wasted scenes or wasted time. It's, like, barely theatrical length. This movie just gets in and out, which is like what you want to do for a bank robbery. So that makes sense, I guess. <laughs> but it's just a really easy but really fun, quotable film to revisit. And yeah, I just I just think it's I think it's just lovely. I, I like the cast. I like the, the, the humor. Just no notes. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us today and wanting to talk about this just incredible movie. Where can our listeners find you? And are there anything cool you want to shout out? Uh, you can find me at Dead Meat on YouTube, uh, the Dead Meat podcast, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at C A R E B E C C. And yeah. Uh, I can't think of anything specific that's coming out. I think uh, tonight we're going to go see Bodies, Bodies, Bodies so we can review it for the podcast. So if that interests you, that'll be our next episode. Killer. I love it. Friends, as always, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, humongous thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, what cool band do you want people to check out this week inspired by Sugar and Spice? So despite this being a movie from the 2000s, this movie has a very distinct like 90s femme soundtrack that kind of rules. Uh, so the band that I want to shout out captures a, a modern version of that. They're called Pollyanna and they released an album in June called Slime. It's a mixture of like 90s grunge and like more hardcore skate punk and power pop and just like a lot of really it runs the gambit of styles all within this one album but it all is funneled in a really clear way by this band like they they managed to put it all together in a really cohesive album that I think is a wonderful listen Uh, as far as like favorite songs go mine is Mars but the whole album is a great listen for something that really rocks. Awesome. Make sure y'all check it out and we will add them to our ongoing playlist of recommended artists. So if you're not already subscribed to that, it is in our link tree and all of our social media. You can find that very, very easily. But friends, that takes us out on Sugar and Spice. We will see you next time. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. 
My best friend got pregnant. Before you? <sighs> Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I said, too. Um, anyway, we want to help her get some money for the baby by robbing a bank. Well, shit fire, Kansas. That's the sweetest thing I ever heard. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.